I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 48, The Rite of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Ingle, volume 1, pages 142 to 153, and if there's time afterwards, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Life with Bosey, the Golden Boy. Lord Alfred Bruce Douglas, affectionately known as Bosey, was the third and youngest son of the eighth Marquess of Queensbury. He was a born and bred aristocrat, educated at the elite Winchester Public School and later Oxford. He was also an aspiring poet, well-built, with exceptionally good looks, golden blonde hair, and an alabaster complexion. This the combination proved irresistible to Wilde. Lionel Johnson, a former Winchesterian and a homosexual, had introduced the two men during the summer of 1891. Douglas was barely 21 and a struggling student at Magdalen College, Oxford, when he began his explosive affair with Wilde, now 37, and a husband and father. Wilde was thoroughly besotted from the moment they met. All caution was thrown to the wind. Wilde courted the beautiful Bosey for several months, buying him presents and entertaining him in high fashion before Douglas permitted Wilde to fillet him. Bosey used to playing the active role sodomy in his relations with adolescent boys later recalled that it was not a particularly pleasant experience. Nevertheless, Wilde's fame, money, Celebrity status and most of all his magical conversation proved to be an adequate compensation for his role as catamite to Oscar Wilde. Although Douglas's mother and others blamed the elder Wilde for corrupting Bosey, this was not quite true. Bosey had engaged in homosexual acts, that is, mutual masturbation, not sodomy, at Winchester and Oxford, and had already developed a taste for boys younger than himself. There is no evidence, however, he ever engaged in such acts with older men until he met Wilde. Since their sexual relationship by mutual agreement was never exclusive, Posey was able to seek out more adventurous sexual outlets in the form of renters and roughers, many of whom he happily shared with Oscar. This arrangement of mutual Infidelity, however, never prevented Douglas from flying into one of his jealous rages over one of Oscar's new flames. For his part, Wilde, who was never possessive about his he-whores, often referred to his casual affairs with lower-class youth as feasting with panthers, his boy prostitute being the exotic beast and Wilde their dominant and masculine animal trainer, animal tamer. Although Douglas eventually gave up homosexual practices altogether in his post-adolescent years, Wilde never did. In fact, the older Wilde became, the more indiscriminate he became and the younger and younger his partners became. As for specific homosexual practices, all the evidence available to date shows that both men preferred the dominant and active role although both were known to occasionally play the passive role. The record also indicates that both men practiced masturbation of partners, mutual masturbation, interfemoral, fraudage, fellatio, and at least on Wilde's part, sodomy. Unfortunately for Wilde, 
what had begun as a quasi-intellectual search for their Greek ideal love had deteriorated into a frenzied pursuit of uninhibited pleasure and raw sex accompanied by other illicit homosexual accoutrements such as drugs and Socratic pornography. Eventually, his homosexual passions became so all-consuming that he had to leave London to get any writing done at all. To add fuel to the fire, both Wilde and Douglas actively and openly proselytized for the cause whenever and wherever they could. For example, in his fourth year at Magdalen College, Oxford, Douglas took over the editorship of the Spirit Lamp and used the magazine to promote a thinly veiled homoerotic ethos under the guise of Hellenistic love. The equally dedicated Wilde tried his hand at recruiting fellow debauchees, debauchers from his many artistic friends and acquaintances. He credited himself with bringing the French writer André Gide, whom he had met in Paris in 1891, into the fold. In his biography of Gide, the French writer Jean Delay affirmed that Wilde played a decisive role in Gide's decision to aggressively pursue a life of pederasty following their meeting in Algiers in January of 1895. The details of that fateful meeting in Algiers when Wilde persuaded the young Gide to accompany him on one of his nocturnal pederastic adventures are recorded by a number of writers, including Gide himself, in his autobiography, Silagran de Nimrut. Silagran Nimrut. It is delay, however, who best captured the spirit with which Wilde entered into this singular enterprise. According to Delay, Gide was not unaware of the true nature of Wilde's and Douglas's unnatural passions, passions for young boys, passions to which he himself was attracted. What set Wilde apart for Gide, however, was the enthusiasm with which Wilde was always trying to instill into you a sanction for evil. Wilde's new hedonism left no room for the quaint moralisms that still haunted Gide, such as Christianity's emphasis on the mortification of the flesh or the condemnation of man's baser instincts. The vulnerable Gide was swept away. Following his extraordinary sexual encounter with a young Algerian musician of about 14, Gide convinced himself that he had at last discovered his true self. He became a confirmed pederast. What followed was quite predictable. As Delay explained, the minute a young man whose instinct has been repressed by moral and social constraints decides to free sexuality from guilt, he also generally rebels against the constraints themselves. She proved to be no exception to the rule. Whether in Algiers or Paris or London, the wild Douglas affair was not an open secret. It was simply open. From November 1882 to December of 1883, Wilde and Douglas were constantly in each other's company and traveled everywhere together, usually with a bevy of international news reporters at their heels. Later, as the sexual intensity of their relationship began to cool, the men continued to enjoy each other's company as friends and companions in crime. Their combined flamboyant antics camp language and mannerisms and dandyish dress attracted attention and media coverage wherever they went, in England or on the continent. 
Meanwhile, on the home front, Wilde's family, his wife, young sons, mother and brother, Willie, were beginning to feel the painful effects of Victorian society's disapproval in the form of increased social ostracism and isolation, entering the forbidden zone, the case of Edward Shelley. Between 1892 and 1895, Wilde turned London society on its head with an unprecedented series of highly successful and lucrative theatrical productions, beginning with Lady Windermere's Fan, 1892, followed by A Woman of No Importance, 1893, An Ideal Husband, 1895, and The Importance of Being Earnest, 1895. On a more personal level, the celebrated middle-aged playwright and pederast kept an eye out for potential new sexual conquests and began exploring heretofore forbidden territories. Enter Edward Shelley. It was Wilde who spotted the handsome 18-year-old clerk office boy when he went over to his publishers, Elkin Matthews and John Lane's office on Beagle Street one fine day in early 1892 to sign some copies of his poems. Shelley was not what one might call Wilde's usual cup of tea. That is to say, he was neither an Oxford, an Oxbridge queer, nor a male prostitute. He came from a respectable middle-class family and had attended state schools. On the other hand, he had all the essentials Wilde demanded from his sexual consorts. He was young, handsome, most likely a virgin, and like John Gray, he had some literary aspirations which Wilde could and did exploit. Flattered that the elder Wilde would take a particular interest in him, Shelley accepted an invitation from the elder Wilde for dinner and drinks at a public room at the Abermall Hotel. Later, the two men retired to Wilde's private suite for more drinking and probably a smoke of Oscar's opium-tipped cigarettes. Shelley was primed for seduction, and Wilde carted him off to the adjoining bedroom to sample the boy's physical attributes. Shelley later testified that he successfully resisted Wilde's advances that night. The next evening, Wilde brought his new favorite to the theater to show him off. Shelley also dined with Oscar and Constance at their home, and was later introduced to some of Wilde's more intimate friends. At one point, Wilde asked Shelley to join him for a stay at a Felbrig farmhouse near Cromer, but the invitation was turned down as the lad still had his job to consider. There are conflicting reports as to whether or not Wilde ever engaged in explicit sexual acts with Shelley, but there appears to be sufficient evidence that he did so before their relationship ended in March of 1893. Although Wilde had grown bored with the now petulant and demanding Shelley, it was actually the young man who broke off the relationship ostensibly out of concern for the increasing dangers posed by his intimacy with the famed playwright. The unhappy youth had become the butt of endless jokes at the office, where his not-so-naive fellow workers referred to him as Miss Oscar or Mrs. Wilde. Shelley, who was becoming, beginning to exhibit signs of an emotional breakdown, soon lost his job, at which point he confided his plight to his father, who strictly forbade him to ever see Wilde again. Shelley had no contact with Wilde for over a year. Then, in 1894, 
Wilde received a telegram from the down-and-out Shelley asking for money. In his communication, Shelley said he was haunted by a bad conscience resulting from the sins they had committed together. Wilde felt hurt and betrayed. After all, he had done for the boy. Nevertheless, he sent him the money. A case of blackmail or not, Shelley's telegram was an evil omen of things to come. But Wilde was too intoxicated with his newly found fame and fortune to take notice. Deeper into London's homosexual maelstrom. The door to London's homosexual underground had been opened to Oscar during his early years at Oxford by his friends Frank Miles and Lord Gower. Wilde's affair with Robbie Ross had expanded his connections to Oxbridge's intimate coterie of queer dons. After he met Douglas Wilde's initiation into Victorian England's flourishing and multi-layered world of same-sex prostitution and criminal activity was complete. Wilde had two primary resources for the procurement of young boys. One was Alfred Waterhouse Somerset Taylor, and the other was Maurice Schwaba. Schwaba was the younger, more intelligent, and better educated of the two men, and shared Wilde's preference for boys from the East End slums. The two men had been introduced by Robbie Ross, Ross. Wilde, who had a brief sexual relationship with Schwaba, would occasionally have the young man over for dinner at his home to catch up on the latest gossip of London's homosexual scene. Late in the summer of 1892, Schwaba introduced Wilde to his friend Alfred Taylor, a rather gentle individual with a penchant for women's clothing and young renters. Taylor, now in his early 30s, had been educated at Marlborough and then privately tutored. He had planned a military career in London's Royal Fusilier Regiment, but when he came into a fortune, he decided to pursue a life of pleasure instead. Croft Cook characterized Taylor as a harmless, typical London effeminate queen who had overspent himself into bankruptcy. He now lived in a set of small rooms on Little College Street that served as a campground for other homosexual queens from other respectable families. Taylor enjoyed cruising and would often bring his young pickups back to his apartment for one of his tea parties. According to Croft Cook, a friendly but dangerous competition of sorts developed between Taylor and Schwab as to who could bring Wilde the best boys, nice, clean, and feminine. One of Taylor's more classy pickups was a tall, slim lad he spotted at the Gaiety Theater by the name of Sidney Maver, a.k.a. Jenny. Taylor told the young man that Mr. Wilde liked nice, clean boys. Shortly thereafter, Taylor introduced Wilde to the impressionable Maver as a real lord at a lavish dinner at Kettner's that Schwab had arranged for the occasion. Douglas joined the foursome to witness the seduction scene. A few nights later, Wilde had the boy at the Albemarle Hotel. Sidney Maber became one of Wilde's unextended favorites. Unfortunately for Wilde, Schwab was less selective in his choices. One of his pickups was a 17-year-old charmer named Frederick Denny Atkins, who, unbeknownst to Schwab, was an accomplished blackmailer with a criminal record a mile long. Schwab himself became rather attached to the boy, but he eventually got around to introducing Atkins to Wilde 
in October 1892. Like Schwabe, the earthy and bulgar Atkins fascinated Wilde so much so that he took his new secretary to Paris where the two men had connecting bedrooms and Freddy received, of all things, a permanent wave at the famed Pascal Hair Salon. Soon after their return to England, the enterprising Atkins brought his friend and fellow blackmailer Alfred Wood, an unemployed clerk, over to Taylor's place. Wilde was away, but Douglas was there and scooped the beautiful boy up for himself. That was his first mistake. The second was to take this new angelic-faced acquisition to his rooms at Oxford, where Wood managed to secure some indiscreet love letters that Wilde had written to his bossy. Wilde would later pay out blackmail money for those letters, but not before he had tasted Wood's charms for himself. While the Atkins-Wood affair was being played out, Taylor, not to be outdone by Schwabe, had procured two delightful boys for Wilde at the St. James Bar through the intercession of a young prostitute named Edward Harrington, and to the brothers William and Charles Parker, a couple of penniless, down-on-your-luck young lads looking to survive and willing to sell their bodies to a willing gent. Taylor kept the boys for himself for a while before introducing them to Wilde and his friends. After an evening of superb dining and drinking champagne at a local restaurant, Wilde got his choice of the brothers and picked Charlie, who had a girlish face and slight build. William stayed behind with Taylor, who Wilde, while Wilde took his brother to his suite of rooms at the Savoy, plied the boy with liquor and sodomized him. Under oath, Charles Parker testified that before meeting Taylor, he had never been involved in prostituting himself. He said at the trial that he had entered the Army in August 1894. Charlie Parker gave a detailed description of how Wilde liked his sex. I was asked by Wilde to imagine that I was a woman and that he was my lover. I had to keep up the illusion. I used to sit on his knees and he used to play with my private privates as a man might amuse himself with a girl. Wilde insisted on this filthy make-believe being kept up. By 1893, Wilde had found it necessary to find new working quarters, this time at 10 James, St. 10 St. James Place, as the proprietors of hotels like the Albemarle no longer wanted his business. With Douglas abroad, Wilde continued his visits with Charlie Parker, Sidney Mauber, and Freddie Atkins, along with several other new boys, among them an actor, Harry Barford, and an unemployed clerk, Ernest Scarf, who discard of Douglas, to whom Oscar gave an inscribed silver cigarette case. They were, however, only part. The, they were, however, only part of Wilde's and Douglas's common stable of available boys. Others were just working-class boys. They occasionally solicited from local hotels or on the street, like 18-year-old Alfonso Harold Conway, who sold papers on the waterfront at Worthing. Taylor had also been forced to move out that same year, but for a different reason. The police had warned, had learned about his same-sex brothel and his so-called tea parties, and had set watch 
on his little college street apartment, which they later searched. On August 12, 1884, the 32-year-old Taylor was arrested along with Charlie Parker, now 19, when the police raided a drag party held at a residence at Fitzroy Street. Wilde remained unfazed. Queensberry attacks and Wilde sues. In the opening chapter to the picture of Dorian Gray, Wilde has the dissolute Lord Watton advise his artist friend, Basil Hallward, whom Dorian Gray will later stab to death, that I choose my friends for their good looks, my acquaintances for their good characters, and my enemies for their good intellects. A man cannot be too careful on, in the choice of his enemies. It is unfortunate that Wilde it is fortunate for a while that he did not heed his own advice. In taking Lord Douglas as a lover, Wilde had also taken on a formidable enemy, Bossy's father, John Sholto Douglas, the eighth Marquess of Queensbury. Wilde underestimated the tenacity and resourcefulness of Queensbury, as well as his own vulnerability at many different levels. Wilde's biographer, Elman, described Queensbury as an aristocratic rebel of Scottish descent and an iconoclast who rejected Christianity until his death bed conversion to Catholicism on January 31, 1900, the same year as Wilde's death. Like Wilde, Queensbury was a complex, driven character and just as reckless. On the other hand, he had two distinct advantages over Wilde. First, he possessed an aristocratic title that buffered him from the consequences of his eccentric behavior, and secondly, he was very wealthy. The fact that Queensberry, after whom the Marquis of Queensberry rules of English and American boxing are named, saw himself as the ep epitome of a man's man, made Wilde's highly publicized fling with his youngest son, Alfred, the equivalent of waving a red flag in front of a raging bull. Further, there is evidence to indicate that Queensberry's claim, Queensberry's claim against Wilde may not have been solely motivated out of personal malice or spite. On October 18, 1894, Queensberry's favorite son and heir to the title, Francis Archibald Douglas, Lord Drumlangring, Lang, Drumlangring, was killed in a hunting accident. Rumors soon surfaced that the accident was actually a suicide. Francis Douglas had served as private secretary to Lord Rosebery, Archibald Philip Primrose, the fifth Earl of Rosebery, 1847 to 1929, a fellow Scot and foreign secretary under Gladstone in 18, 1886 and again in 1892. There were rumors that Francis had become the widowed Rosebery's young lover. The threat of public exposure of the alleged affair between Lord Drumlangrig and Lord Rosebery, leader of the Liberal Party and England's future Prime Minister, was said to have driven Francis to take his own life. Whether or not Queensberry was angry because he had evidence of Rosebery's homosexual relationship with his eldest son, or simply because Rosebery had brought Francis into the House of Lords 
as Lord Kelhead in 1893, while he, Queensbury, who carried the ancient title of his Scottish ancestors, languished outside for his unorthodox beliefs, or both, we do not know. We do know, however, that early that same year, Queensbury had pursued Rosebery to Hamburg, Germany, where the foreign secretary was on holiday and, armed with a horsewhip, announced his intention to publicly assault the British minister for his part in promoting Lord Drumlangwig to the peerage. The Prince of Wales personally intervened, and the chief commissioner of, of police arrived on the scene, escorted Queensbury away, and made sure he was on the morning train to Paris. Rosebery later wrote to the Queen, It is a material and unpleasant addition to the labors of Your Majesty's service to be pursued by pugilists of unsound mind. Wilde Wild was next on Queensbury's hit list. On April Fool's Day, 1894, Queensbury spotted Alfred and Oscar lunching together at the Café Royale. The two men had just returned from Paris, where Wilde had had a bitter fallout with Douglas. The pair was now openly engaged in one of their powerful, in one of their proverbial reconciliations. Queensbury needed, Queensbury used the occasion to issue his son a final warning to end his, his loathsome and disgusting relationship with Wilde, but to no avail. Queensbury's next stop was to engage a top-notch solicitor, Sir George Henry Lewis, a friend of the Douglas family. In late June, Queensbury showed up at Wilde's tight street residence in a violent rage, cursing and shaking his fist, demanding that Wilde sever his relationship with Bosey. He then began to stalk Wilde as he had done Roseberry. Wilde prepared himself for a legal battle and sought out the advice of a solicitor, but it was not until the following year that he was galvanized into action. On February 18, 1895, four months to the day following the death of his beloved son Francis, Queensbury delivered the most famous misspelled calling card in history to a porter at the Albemarle Club. It read to Oscar Wilde, posing sodomite, posing salamite, sick. Wilde had been away in Algiers with Douglas and did not receive the inscribed card until ten days later. Goaded on by his own pride and sense of honor and by Rope Bosey, who wanted to see his father in the, in the jail, Wilde filed, filed a civil suit of criminal libel against Queensbury, who was arrested on Saturday morning, March 1, 1895. A surety of 1,500 pounds was demanded of Queensbury to ensure that he would not flee the country, which, of course, he had absolutely no intention of doing. It is important to keep in mind that although Queensbury was the defendant in this first trial, the nature of the case was such that it was Wilde, not Queensbury, who was actually on trial. As expected, Queensbury pleaded justification and on March 30 filed the required bill of particulars that listed 15 separate counts and 12 young men, 10 named, whom Wilde solicited to commit sodomy. Both Wilde and Douglas, in the presence of Wilde's solicitor, saw the listing with all the familiar names, Shelley, Maber, Atkins, Schwaber, Charles, Parker, Wood, and so on, before the trial began. 
but they were apparently not aware that these young men were actually in the building preparing to give testimony on their relationship with Wilde. It appears from subsequent events that Queensbury must have secured a promise of immunity from prosecution for the boys since none was arrested and held for trial after the Wilde case, after the Wilde ordeal was over. In any case, Wilde was able to convince his solicitors that although he knew the boys, he had never engaged in any sexual improprieties with them. He insisted that he was absolutely innocent of the charges made against him. On with the trial. The show must go on. Wilde versus Queensbury. Following preliminary court proceedings, the first of three sensational trials involving Oscar Wilde began at the Old Bailey on April 3, 1895, with Mr. Justice R. Hen Collins presiding. The young but formidable barrister, Edward Carson, later Lord Carson, a fellow student of Wilde's from Trinity College, Dublin, assisted by junior counsel Charles F. Gill, appeared for the defense. Queensbury. Queensbury also retained the services of Charles Russell. The distinguished Sir Arthur, the distinguished Sir Edward Clark, QC, MP, one of the most respected and renowned solicitors in England, and a veritable titan of the bar, assisted by Mr. Travis Humphreys and Mr. Charles Willie Matthews, an experienced criminal lawyer, appeared for the prosecution of Wilde. Prosecution Wilde. Both sides were more than adequately represented, but in the end, the trial proved a no contest. As the first day of proceedings came to a close, Clark knew that despite Wilde's oath to the contrary, his client had deliberately lied to him about his pederastic activities. Further, Wilde had just repeatedly perjured himself on the stand, beginning with a simple lie about his age. He was not 39, he was over 40. Moreover, Clark strongly suspected that Carson had more than enough evidence to support Queensbury's accusation that his client was not only opposing sodomite, but an active one. What was even more certain was that no jury in the world was going to convict a father for trying to save his son from such a man. For his part, Wilde had anticipated that he would be questioned in court about his relationship with Queensbury and his son. Lord Douglas and the homoerotic implications of some of his published works, such as the picture of Dorian Gray, and personal correspondence, including the blackmail letters taken by Wood from Douglas at Oxford. He was prepared to deliver an eloquent soliloquy in defense of Socratic love, yet for some inexplicable reason he was not prepared when at the end of the first day of the trial, Carson began to question him about his relationship with a certain young man with certain young men. First, Carson asked about Wilde's relationship with his publisher's office boy, Edward Shelley. Then he passed a note to Wilde without comment with Maurice Schwab's name written on it. Then he inquired about the dock boy, Alfonso Conway, and laid out a selection of gifts, including a signed edition of one of his works that Wilde had given the semi-literate street urchin. Next, Carson asked about Walter Granger, barely 16, when Wilde met him. He had been a servant 
at the house in Oxford where Douglas had had rooms. Finally, he asked about Wilde. He finally asked Wilde about a page boy at the Savoy named Herbert Tankard, whom Wilde had shipped to Calais for safekeeping. Tankard did not testify. Throughout the questioning, Wilde insisted under oath that he had no improper relationship with any of the boys. Further, he said he had no reason to suspect that any of the boys was of an immoral or disreputable character. Many thought that Clark was going to call Lord Douglas to the stand to defend Wilde, but he did not. Wilde said he opposed putting Bossy in the witness box as he was loath to put his son against his father. Clark also was opposed to opening up another can of worms. The following day, Carson continued his re-examination of Wilde, this time homing in on Wilde's relationship with Alfred Taylor and the boys that Taylor had procured for him, Charles Parker, Fred Atkins, Ernest Scarf, and Sidney Maver. The key question was not what Wilde had given them in terms of payment or gifts, but what the boys had given to him. He also asked Wilde if he remembered the waiter at the hotel in the Boulevard des Capuchins in Paris, which signaled to Wilde that Carson had information on his sexual exploits outside of London. When Carson announced that the defense was prepared to call to the stand at least five of the dozen or so boys with whom Wilde had sexual relations, Wilde blanched. To his credit, Clark stood by his client. Wilde was advised of his legal options. Privately, however, he was urged to take his wife and family and seek voluntary exile abroad, while his solicitors gained him time by keeping the trial going. Wilde refused. Queensberry's position stiffened, and he told his solicitors to refuse any compromise that Clark was prepared to offer. On April 5, the third and final day of the trial, Clark had no choice but to concede defeat and withdraw the prosecution. Queensberry was acquitted of all charges. Mr. Justice Collins instructed the jury to rule that not only were Queensberry's charges against Wilde true, but that his actions in exposing Wilde were in the public interest. Wilde was ordered to pay Queensberry's court costs of 600 pounds. But even worse, his actions against Queensberry had opened him up to the prosecution by the Crown for the violation of the Criminal Law Amendment Amendment Act of 1885. Once again, Queensberry was willing, even at this late date, to let the matter drop, if Wilde were willing to leave England and Bosley behind. But when Wilde again refused, Queensberry immediately ordered his solicitors to turn over all, ev- all evidence against Wilde to the Crown's Director of Prosecution's Office in the Treasury Building in Whitehall. At 3.30 p.m., Detective Inspector Brockwell from Scotland Yard was dispatched to seek a warrant for the arrest of Wilde from Sir, Son, from Sir John Bridge, the Bow Street Magistrate. Before issuing the warrant, Bridge held a meeting with Brockwell, Queensbury's men, Russell and Gill, and two of the boys named in Queensbury's list of particulars. The delay was no doubt deliberate in order to provide Wilde with sufficient time to catch the next train to Dover and a boat to France. As H. Montgomery Hyde, a former MP, suggested in the midst of severe economic and political turmoil at home and abroad, the last thing the Liberal government 
of Prime Minister Rosebery or the royal family needed was an international expose of sodomitical practices among Britain's upper and aristocratic classes. But to everyone's surprise, when the police arrived at the Cadogan Hotel, Wilde was waiting for them. His instinct had been to flee, and this he had the support of nearly all his friends and family, including his wife, Constance. But his mother, Lady Wilde, was against his flight. She demanded, as a condition for retaining her love, that Oscar remain in England and face the charges against him, even if it meant imprisonment. Later, Wilde confided to Bosey that he was not wont to live the life of a fugitive. Some of Wilde's friends, however, did not share his scruples. Robert Ross and Maurice Schwaber, with whom Wilde had been intimate, and a number of active pederasts crossed over from Dover to Calais that night. Wilde spent a fretful night in jail at the Bow Street police station. The next morning he was formally charged with having committed acts of gross indecency. Mr. Justice Bridge, a firm proponent of anti-sodomy statutes, denied him bail, and he was remanded in custody at Holloway Prison for the next three weeks, during which time he underwent, underwent three grueling sessions of preliminary hearings before a grand jury at the Bow Street Station. The prosecution was ready to present the testimony of some of the boys Alfred Taylor had solicited for a while, beginning with Charles Parker. Parker was followed by Sidney Maver, the only public school boy in the bunch. Douglas had managed to get him had managed to get to him earlier and convinced him that as a man of honor he had a solemn duty to deny having anything to do with Wilde. Although Maber admitted that he had been bid to bed with Taylor when the prosecution asked what happened when he and Wilde spent the night together in Wilde's bed, he replied nothing. The grand jury was of another mind and both Wilde and Taylor were bound over for trial for violating Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act, the Crown versus Wilde, the first round. On April 26, 1895, the second of the Wilde trial, the second of the Wilde trials opened in criminal court at the Old Bailey with Mr. Justice Sir Arthur Charles, a distinguished authority on ecclesiastical law presiding. Wilde stood co-counsel with Alfred Taylor as the indictment against both men was read. They were charged with 25 counts of gross indecencies, not sodomy, and three counts of conspiracy to commit such acts. Char Clark waived his fee and continued to serve as Wilde's solicitor, along with Matthews and Humphreys. Mr. Justice Charles F. Gill, a Trinity College alumnus like Carson, assisted by Horace Avery and Arthur Gill acted for the Crown under the advisement of the Solicitor General, Sir Frank Lockwood. Prior to the start of the trial, both sides maneuvered for advantage. Clark wanted Wilde to be tried separately from poor Taylor, who was an obvious liability. When the trial ended and the conspiracy charge was dropped, the two men were unjoined and retried separately. Gill, in turn, had reached a deal with Queensbury's solicitor to keep Lord Douglas's name out of the court proceedings insofar as possible in exchange for the evidence of evidence Queensbury's private detectives had assembled against Wilde. There were also rumors afloat at Whitehall that Lord Rosebery 
Queensbury's nemesis, had considered helping Wilde at one point, but was dissuaded from doing so as Wilde was considered to be too great a political liability. Bolsey, who had remained in London throughout the Queensbury trial and had visited Wilde daily during his incarceration at Holloway Prison, had departed for Clay with Oscar's blessings after Clark insisted his presence in London would hurt his client, especially if Douglas were called as a witness for the prosecution by the prosecution. Wilde was released on bail, but since no hotel would have him, he was forced to find lodgings with one of the few sympathetic friends Wilde had left, Ada Leverson, whom Wilde affectionately called the Sphinx. Once the legal preliminaries were over and Wilde's trial got underway, the second trial moved quickly. Gill ordered Charles Parker to the witness stand, and the youth stated that Wilde had committed sodomy and other acts on his person at the Savoy, Albemarle, and St. James hotels, Taylor's house, Wilde's home on the street, and Charles Parker's and Parker's room in Chelsea. William Parker confirmed his brother's testimony with details that demonstrated both boys were speaking the truth. Next, Gill's junior aide, Avery, interrogated Alfred Wood, who testified that Wilde has also sodomized him. Then came Thomas Price, a waiter at the St. James, who stated that Wilde brought boys of quite inferior station to the hotel. The young blackmailer, Fred Atkins, testified after Price. He told the jury about his trip to Paris with Wilde, but said there were no indecencies between them. Atkins later removed from the courtroom and charged with perjury. Atkins was later removed from the courtroom and charged with perjury. A housekeeper who took care of Atkins' lodgings said that Wilde visited the young man there and that the bedsheets were stained in a peculiar way after Wilde's visits with Atkins. Sidney Marber testified next and stated that there, stated there was never any impropriety between himself and Wilde. This statement was in contradiction to the testimony he had given previously to police officers that he and Wilde were intimate. Gill then brought the prosecution's star witness to the stand. The testimony of Edward Shelley was important for the prosecution's case. Wilde had corrupted and ruined him. Unfortunately, Shelley was both mentally and emotionally unfit to testify. But he gave his statement nevertheless. Later, Wilde denied he conducted himself improperly with Shelley or that he had any improper relations with Charles Parker, Wood, or Conway. Asked what was Wilde's business with these lads, Wilde replied that he loved youth and found the boys' company entertaining. The prosecution now brought to the witness stand several employees of the Savoy Hotel who had observed Wilde naked in bed with naked young boys. Antonio Miga, the professional Monsieur, who had attended Wilde, said he saw Wilde in bed with the young man. His evidence was confirmed by a chambermaid, Jane Cotter, who testified that she saw Wilde in bed with a boy of about 16. Later, Cotter said she received instructions from the housekeeper, Mrs. Ann, Annie Perkins, on how to deal with the stained sheets. Gill filed additional transcripts with the judge, and the case 
for the crown was completed. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Article 5, The Morality of the Passions. 1762, the human person is ordered to beatitude by his deliberate acts. The passions or feelings he experiences can dispose him to it and contribute to it. 1. The Passions, 1763. The term passions belongs to the Christian patrimony. Feelings or passions are emotions or movements of the sensitive appetite that incline us to act or not to act in regard to something felt or imagined to be good or evil. 1764. The passions are a natural component of the human psyche. They form the passageway and ensure the connection between the life of the senses and the life of the mind. Our Lord calls man's heart the source from which the passions spring. 1765. There are many passions. The most fundamental passion is love, aroused by the attraction of the good. Love causes a desire for the absent good and the hope of obtaining it. This movement finds completion in the pleasure and joy of the good possessed. The apprehension of evil causes hatred, aversion, and fear of the impending evil. The mo- this movement ends in sadness at some present evil or on the anger that resists it. 1766. To love is to will the good of another. All other affections have their source in this first movement of the human heart toward the good. Only the good can be loved. Passions are evil if love is evil and good if it is good. 2. Passions and Moral Life, 1767. In themselves, passions are neither good nor evil. They are morally qualified only to the extent that they are effectively, that they effectively engage reason and will. Passions are said to be voluntary, either because they are commanded by the will or because the will does not place obstacles in their way. It belongs to the perfection of the moral or human good that the passions be governed by reason. 1768. The strong strong feelings are not decisive for the morality or the holiness of persons. They are simply the inexhaustible reservoir of images and affections in which the moral life is expressed. Passions are morally good when they contribute to a good action, evil in the opposite case. The upright will orders the movements of the senses it appropriates to the good and to beatitude. An evil will succumbs to disordered passions and exacerbates them. Emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or perverted by the vices. 1769. In the Christian life, the Holy Spirit himself accomplishes his work by mobilizing the whole being with all its arrows, fears, and sadness, as is visible in the Lord's agony and passion, and Christ's human feelings are able to reach their consummation in charity and divine beatitude. 1770. Moral perfection consists in man's being moved to the good, not by his will alone, but also by his sensitive appetite, as in the words of the psalm, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And this is all my reading from the Catechism today and from the Rite of Sodomy. And so I'll end my podcast here. May God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.